which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's really good to see you, especially if this is your first time. We're really glad you're here. My name is Jeremy, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Now, back in the early 2000s, there was a Presbyterian pastor and theologian named Steve Brown, and he had a radio talk show. Now, the radio was this thing kind of before podcasts. Uh, It's hard to explain. But the thing about radio shows was that it happened live. Like it was actually happening in real time. So there'd be like actual people in a studio somewhere. And then you could actually call into the show and get right on the air and like be on the show. You're thinking that's a terrible idea. That's right. That's why they don't exist anymore. But Dr. Brown was uh, a well-known, respected theologian, older guy, white hair, wears a suit, you know, like I said, Presbyterian. But Dr. Brown also had gotten a hold of the radical message of God's grace. He had a sense of humor, and so one day he decided to have a little bit of fun on his talk radio show. He decided to offer three free sins to anybody who called in. So this is, uh, you know, how one of the conversations went. Hello, you're on the air. I'm angry, really angry. Okay, what's making you angry? It's this three free sins thing. It's not right. Okay, I'll give you four. (laughs) You don't understand. This is not funny. Okay, I'll give you five, but that's as high as I'm going. This is blasphemous. You're hurting the cause of Christ. And it went on for some time until the producer comes over the airwaves and says, ma'am, it's a joke. Steve can't actually give you free sins. Now, Dr. Brown wrote later, all my life I've struggled with very little success to stay within the religious box. And so I care about those who are running away from God and those who never came to him in the first place because he was big and scary. I care about those who can't believe that God could ever love them. I care about those whose secrets are making them sick, whose guilt is making them neurotic, whose fear prevents any kind of remedy. I care about people who have forgotten how to dance and laugh because dancing and laughing are unseemly and might not please a holy God. So he believed in a radical, outrageous grace, even when it sort of disrupted the status quo or maybe especially where it disrupted the status quo. And too often we can't really come to grips with the the scandalous, outrageous nature of God's grace that all of our sins are free because they've been paid for at the cross. And so we settle. We settle for doing good, for for trying harder. Is this coming through enough or is it too soft? It's coming and going. I'll use a handheld. Is this a little better? All right. Thanks for waving me down. All right. I'm going to have to move back a little. All right. 
Should I start over? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what we do is we, we settle for what we know, what we can control. We settle for trying harder. We settle for doing better, for being as good of a person as we can possibly be because there's nothing more terrifying than the grace of God. There's nothing more terrifying than being fully known by God and being fully loved by him, which means that there is nothing that we can do, nothing that we have done to earn our salvation, nothing that we do to even add to it a little bit, nothing that we have that we are offering to God. This is overwhelming for us. It feels like it's too much for us because it says about us that in fact, we are simply desperate, needy people. No better than anyone else, especially those we most want to be able to look down on. Dan Allender is a counselor and he he once said at a pastor's conference, the grace at the heart of the Christian faith is so radical that most congregations can't deal with it. So, and he's talking to pastors, you have to parcel it out little bits at a time until you get the kids through college. And so he's saying, if you're, if you're a pastor, you have to be careful with grace, but then, you know, like it might ruin your career prospects and your reputation, but once your kids are through college, then you can really just, just let go of it, you know? And so that, that may be true. You know, if you're, you know, Presbyterian, Baptist, which we're not, we're non-denominational, so we can just let it fly, you know, we can go all in on grace. Or we can recognize our desperate need of God's grace. We can look at the scriptures and see with honesty how outrageous it is that God would accept us, not because we've done anything to earn it, but simply because we, we receive what he has given us in Christ. And so today we're starting this new series on the message of the gospel according to the book of Galatians. We're asking what is the gospel message? What does it mean for us? How does it come to us? How does it change us? How does it transform us together? And if you're asking why Galatians or why now, it's because we want to make absolutely sure that we don't lose track of the radical grace of God. That which is shared through Jesus and applied abundantly by the Holy Spirit, which sets us free, it redeems us, it rescues us, it it invites us into this whole new life by the power of the Spirit. And that's the gospel, that you are loved by God, not because of, of how you've cleaned up your life, but simply because God is love and he set that love on you. An old mentor of mine, he's passed away, I've never met him, but Jack Miller, who I quote all the time, he says, you're more sinful than you'd ever dare admit, but cheer up, you're more loved and accepted than you'd ever dare imagine. And so today we simply want to introduce the book of Galatians to orient ourselves in its framework. We're going to be looking at three things, the gospel message, the gospel freedom that comes from it, and then the gospel culture that it can create in our midst. Now, we'll start with the gospel message. And Galatians is a short New Testament letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul about 15 or 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension back into heaven. So it's one of the earliest letters of the New Testament. I mean, the people that were alive at the time of Galatians writing were most likely all alive at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And in these 15 or 20 years that have passed between Jesus' time on earth and the writing of Galatians, the church has absolutely exploded across the Middle East, Southern Europe. It is absolutely flourishing. The church is thriving. They're persecuted. They're, you know, being threatened, but it is absolutely taking off. And Paul, his original name was Saul. He had been a Pharisee, a Hebrew religious leader who was, was charged with persecuting these Christians as much as possible. And so he would chase them down. He would arrest them, throw them in prison. Some of them were even killed. But if you know the story from the book of Acts, we'll look at it in detail next week. Paul meets Jesus on the road. He has a profound encounter with the risen Lord. His name is changed. Everything about him is flipped upside down. And now Paul becomes God's choice to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which is just the non-Jews. That's why he writes at the very beginning, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, the Galatians are the very first group of people that Paul reached in his church planning ministry. The context is actually incredible. It's fascinating. I know sometimes biblical context doesn't like get you fired up, but if you read Acts 13 and 14, which I encourage you to do over the next week or so, it describes how the churches in Galatia came about. In Acts 13, 1, it says the church was fasting and praying and worshiping, and the Holy Spirit said to them, which is like, say that again, the Holy Spirit said to them, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas to the work that I'm calling them to. That work was starting new churches. And so we see in Acts 13 that Paul's first stop is a place called Pisidian Antioch, and he goes to a Jewish synagogue, and he tells them about how the whole Old Testament is pointing to this coming Messiah, and that that Messiah is Jesus, and that he died and was resurrected for their sins. A few people believed, most of them think he's crazy, but on the next Sabbath, it says the entire city gathered to hear him speak again. In verse 44, it says, when the Jewish leaders saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they broke up the crowds. So Paul raises his voice and tells the crowd, since you Jews reject the word of God and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we turn now to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Now, Paul and his, his friends, they carry on. They go to another town called Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul first meets a paralyzed man. And in front of a whole crowd, he heals this paralyzed man. The crowd is so overwhelmed and astonished that they start to, to literally worship Paul. And he has to tell them to get up and stop worshiping him and instead to worship Jesus Christ. Now, what happens is the Jewish leaders from the other city, they come to Lystra to find Paul and to oppose him. I mean, like, how frustrating is that? Like, the guys that were bothering him in the last city, now they've come into this city, and they're trying to break up this work that God is doing among them. And they actually, it says, they stone him in chapter 14. They stone him, and thinking he's dead, they drag Paul's body to the edge of the city and leave him in the dust. Disciples gather around him and pray over him, Paul gets up, like dust the, the dirt off his shoulder, and they keep moving. 
I mean, it's wild. It's, it's unbelievable the work that God is doing in Acts 13 and 14. The gospel is spreading like wildfire among these Gentiles. And so after two years, it says that Paul and Barnabas established communities and appointed pastors to serve in those communities. When those two years were done, they head out for the next place, the next cities. Now, a few years go by, and you remember those awful religious leaders that had been stirring up trouble in both places? They are now back, and they're, they're turning the new believers away from the true gospel. And so Paul is at a distance now, and he's, he's astonished. You heard it in the reading in verse 6. And so he writes a letter back to these churches and these young believers, and that letter is the book of Galatians. Now, verse 2 and 3, it says, To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just starts to get right into his gospel message, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he's simply introducing some of the themes that he's going to come back to. And this little greeting, it's a typical salutation, something that was very common in, in ancient letter writing. Like we have email today where we just say the person's name and start typing. They had this kind of elaborate introduce yourself, greet the person, kind of praise them, all that sort of thing. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Like all of his letters, he opens with this greeting of grace and peace. Now, grace gets the first word because it, it always gets the first word. God's grace is his complete acceptance of us, not because of anything we've done to earn it or achieve it, but simply because he sent his love on us. And what follows that grace is the abundant peace of God. It's the result. Peace with God is what the grace of God opens us up to. Grace is like this strong tree of salvation, and yet peace is the, the fruit and the leaves that blossom on it. But the salutation is different from, from really all the rest of Paul's because he, he doesn't go over the top with thanksgiving. He actually doesn't express thanks at all. In his other letters, he, he praises God and, and thanks God for their, you know, their faith, hope, and love, but not in Galatians. He actually just gets right into it. And he, and he really comes after them. I mean, this is the most angry that we see Paul in any of his New Testament letters. We'll see why in a moment. But the first thing to notice is just simply how consumed he is by this gospel message. This grace and peace that we have through Jesus Christ, which comes to us through the free grace of God. Because of Christ, he writes, who gave himself for our sins according to the will of the Father. Now, I've already used the word gospel a, a couple of times this morning, and that's simply the word that Paul and the New Testament writers used to describe the central message of Christianity. In fact, Paul uses that word gospel five times in these opening verses. And the gospel is simply that the grace of God comes to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, it is impossible to overstate how important the gospel is to Christianity. It's actually the very thing that makes Christianity different from every other world religion because every other world religion 
is about personal improvement or, or gradual reform by certain practices and disciplines. And Christianity is like death and then life. And this is how Paul puts it in chapter four. We were in slavery under the spiritual forces of this world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so Paul is going to be describing and, and illuminating this gospel message for us over and over and over throughout Galatians. And it has a few critical elements that we see in this book. First, that we're separated from God by our sins. Second, that God sent his son Jesus into the world for us. Third, that this rescue is a redemption, meaning that it costs God everything and it costs us nothing. But it means our freedom. Fourth, that this rescue is not just from something like sin, but it's for something, which is adoption into the family of God. We actually become his sons and daughters. And the reason that chapter four just uses the word sons is to emphasize that we receive the entire inheritance of this kingdom, of this family. So whereas in ancient traditions, only the firstborn son would inherit all the family's wealth. He's saying you are all firstborn sons now. You all inherit the wealth of God. And then lastly, this rescue is entirely by grace. He writes in chapter two, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And so this is the gospel message that we'll be looking at over the next 18 weeks, give or take a little bit. It's deep enough that we can spend 18 weeks in it just in the book of Galatians. We can spend our whole lives diving into the depths of the gospel and never reach the bottom. And it's simple enough to say, in our sin, God lost us. In Jesus, he comes to get us back. I mean, it's the deepest thing in the world and it is the simplest thing in the world. And this whole thing, according to Paul, is a rescue. It's God's rescue mission, his rescue operation. And that means that we are free. That's the second thing, the the gospel freedom that we receive through believing the gospel message. Now, this freedom is so important. That's why Paul writes in verse six, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. See, in in Paul's New Testament letters, we've looked at a number of them in this church. There are are great levels of nuance. There are often questions that get left unanswered or, or different interpretations that we can take from some of his points. And yet there's one area where he is absolutely crystal clear and and he speaks with incredible force and authority. And it's the, the gospel message, the freedom that the gospel produces in us. Any other gospel he writes is no gospel at all. It's kind of a play on words because gospel in the Greek, it just means good news. So he's saying any other good news that's not the Christian gospel good news is not good news at all. So in other words, if it's an equation, it's like gospel plus anything equals not gospel. 
And that's like basically the whole first chapter of the book. If you add anything to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. Now, Paul lets us understand why this is so important. He says in verse 7, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. See, in Acts 13 and 14, what the Galatians were so drawn to is this free grace of God. This grace that could, that could heal somebody, that could raise a dead person, this grace that would sustain us for all of life in the freedom that it meant for us, that we didn't have to prove ourselves, we didn't have to work hard to, to, to grow in it or to stay in it, but that simply it came to us through Christ. I mean, it's an unbelievable message of total love and acceptance. But then remember, as soon as Paul left, here come these religious leaders. I mean, I've been studying Galatians for the last couple months, and then for the last three, three weeks, I've been like all in, deep dive on Galatians. And the further I go and the more I read this book, just the angrier I get at these guys. I mean, they are like the original haters. All other haters have come from these group of people, right? I mean, they come and they infiltrate and they try to steal. And, and really, here's what their message was. They were Jewish leaders talking to Gentile believers, and they were threatening them and opposing them. But they said, look, if you'll just take on some of our customs, if, you, if you'll just take our, our dietary restrictions, our, our cultural traditions and circumcision, we'll let you actually just be Jews. You can do all your Jesus stuff as long as you follow these few rules that we have, then we'll leave you alone and, and we won't attack you and we won't drag you off to prison and we can all get along and you'll just kind of be under our authority instead. And so we can kind of understand that there's, there's a little bit of tension here and you can see why there was some division in these Galatian churches because the threat and the danger was so real. But also the Galatians, they hadn't fully understood the importance of the grace of God and fully understood that if you add even the smallest things, even if it seems like nothing, even if it seems like maybe it's for the greater good of the community, you are losing the very heart of the gospel. And so Paul comes in white hot, all passion, no filter, legitimately angry, and he rebukes them. Isn't it interesting that Paul's strongest rebuke in all of his letters comes here to the Galatians? Like you might think it was the Corinthians who were doing all kinds of like wild stuff you can't even talk about in most churches. It wasn't the Thessalonians who were like dabbling in some weird end time stuff. It wasn't the young pastors who were like, you know, struggling in their ministries. Like the biggest rebuke comes from the Galatians who had just added a few things to the gospel. Galatians has been one of the most influential pieces of literature in all of world history. It was in 1517 that the book of Galatians led a German priest named Martin Luther to go and post 95 theses to the wall of his local parish. You remember this? Luther got 95 theses, but the Pope ain't one. <laughs> he goes 
full of the Holy Spirit, led by the book of Galatians, in one of the darkest seasons of the church. I mean, really what had happened was those first century haters, you know, that had just trickled down throughout the centuries. Now they've taken over Rome. It's just like no fun having haters going to hate taking over all of religion. That's like my 20 seconds on medieval Christianity. And Luther has to oppose them with the truth of the gospel from Galatians. And it was actually through teaching Galatians in Wittenberg, Germany, and then the lectures became a commentary. And that commentary did more to shape the Protestant Reformation than maybe anything else. But here was Luther's thing. He was saying that the greatest threat to Christianity, it's not total heathenism. It's a very, very similar gospel. That's not really the gospel. Like he's saying a a similar gospel, but it's slightly diluted by good works and traditions and cultural norms. That is the greatest threat to the Christian gospel. And so it is today, the greatest threat to true Christianity. It's, It's not, you know, Islam. It's not secularism. It's not losing power in Washington, D.C. The greatest threat to true Christianity is bad Christianity. It's Christianity plus moralism and good works and traditions and cultural norms. It's Christianity with grace removed. And if you remove the grace from Christianity, you're literally taking its heart out. It's like you're literally taking Jesus's own heart out of Christianity. And sometimes Galatians and and all the historical stuff, I know it can be hard to connect with. And if you're thinking like, are we going to spend the next 18 weeks on like false teaching that seems like incredibly disconnected? The thing is that false teaching is, is all around us and it is in our minds all the time. We constantly need to push back on false teaching with the grace of God. I'll give you a few examples. And Tim Keller talks about this in his studies on Galatians. Anytime we are believing lies about ourselves or about others, we've begun to embrace false teaching. We've lost the grace of God. So having a low view of yourself, saying God can't possibly love me because I've messed up my life too much. There's, you know, there's no way he could love other people, but certainly he can't love me because he knows everything that I am, everything that I've done. That's a false teaching. And Galatians is going to confront that with the power of God's grace by reminding us that we are now God's children, that we have been adopted into his family. No one who's adopted into a family has done anything to earn it. There's not like a kid competition and one of them gets adopted. It's like he's just adopted. She's just welcomed in. And it's not like if they struggle a little bit at first, the family's going to, no, the family has received them. They take them in as a son or daughter, and that's exactly Paul's illustration of the gospel. So having a low view of yourself is a form of false teaching, but also having an inflated view of yourself is false teaching. Thinking I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, I go to church, I've got a good family, I've got a good job. I mean, I am God's man, you know? Like inflated view of self is false teaching. It minimizes the grace of God because it says we aren't really all that bad. God only had to do a little bit with us. It's like, no, the the gospel is completely other than that. 
It would be like looking at like two dead bodies and be like, this one's been dead a little bit longer than the other one. This one looks maybe a little bit better than the other one. It's like they're both dead, like they're corpses. And the gospel is death to life. The gospel is constantly confronting our false teaching. The last one I'll share is tribalism. Saying my, my social group, my cultural group, even my denomination or church tribe, we have it figured out and everybody else is wrong. I thank you, God, that you've made me not like these other people. It's false teaching. We constantly need the grace of God flowing into our minds and hearts. And this is the gospel message, that God's grace comes to us right where we are, pays the penalty for our sin, raises us from the grave, and we get to walk as children of God. And this message welcomes us into the freedom of the gospel, the green pastures, the the wide open, spacious places of the gospel. And it doesn't leave us where where it found us. Like it meets us where we are, but it doesn't leave us there. And that's the third thing that the gospel produces. It's a gospel culture. That the gospel transforms us and it transforms us together into a new kind of people. And we might be afraid, like, will all of this grace talk make us like less good people? You know, like, does God's grace mean that I don't need to, to do good? I don't need to like try at all? Do I need to walk this tightrope of like being good, but not being too good because the pastor said don't be good or something like that. Grace is not walking on a tightrope. Grace is being invited to the banquet table, to the feast of God. It's the wide open, spacious places. And Paul's actually going to say that grace changes everything. And everything that we actually need, all the personal growth and change that we want, everything we want to see in society, it's actually only possible through the grace of God. N.T. Wright says the letter to the Galatians was written to form the community of Jesus' followers and their individual members into a new Messiah people. That means that they should be formed into unity and holiness rooted in the historic gospel and into this strange mixture of suffering and joy which all that will entail. This aligns perfectly with our mission as a church, which is to practice the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. We cannot do that apart from the grace of Christ. You heard it in verse six that we are called to live in the grace of Christ. Not just hear about it, not just know about it and believe about it, but to actually live within it. And grace, according to Galatians, it changes everything. It produces in us a love for each other. In chapter 5, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Grace is also the foundation for unity and racial reconciliation. It says in chapter 3, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Grace is the foundation for personal growth. Chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Grace is the foundation for love for the poor and needy. In chapter 2, Paul says that the other apostles approved of his ministry to the Gentiles on the one condition 
that he remember the poor, which he says was the very thing I had been eager to do. Grace is the foundation for social change. In chapter 6, let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Lastly, grace is the foundation for our mission as a people. Chapter 3 says that Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and it announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So the gospel, it's not just the message that we hear and believe. It's the very sustaining power of God. It is what does all of this in our midst. It what, it's what creates a new kind of culture and atmosphere in our community, in our churches. And so as I think back to that, you know, the caller on the radio show, why is it that we are so afraid of grace? I think of my own life. I grew up in the church. I went to a Christian school. I mean, like, you know, dress shirt, tucked in to khaki pants, brown shoes, your shirt comes untucked at PE, you are like going to the office to write out scripture, like discipline immediately. And yet in that context, in that structure, something connected with my personality, and I actually kind of thrived in it. It's like there were these clear rules, if I just do these things and follow this order, as long as I'm compliant and obedient, I'm going to get ahead and be in front of other people. And I've struggled with grace for so long because I, I want to be the one that, that contributes something, you know? Like I want to be a, a value add in a relationship or in a group. I don't want to be, like my biggest fear in life is basically being a bum, like just not giving anything, not helping, not, not producing. I've been so hardwired, and it's just a subtle message within Christianity. The gospel, yes, but make sure you're trying hard. Make sure you are being really, really good. Make sure you are looking the part. Make sure you don't embarrass us. And we absorb that, don't we? Into our minds, into our hearts. And really, we become just like the world, but just in our own ways. We define ourselves by what we can accomplish, what we can prove, what we can show, We have to shut down God's grace. We have to shut down how he made us. And it's like we're saying, well, at least we're not like the world. At least we're not like addicts. And then we go and we drink six cups of coffee to get up in the morning. We work all day to prove ourselves. We go to the gym to try to look younger and perfect. And then we go home and we need like, you know, a couple of drinks to wind down at the end of the day. And then we say, at least we're not addicts, you know? It's like we can be just like the world by adding our own best efforts to the grace of God. Living in the grace of God, as I said, it's not walking a tightrope. It's dwelling in a, in a safe and a spacious place. It's like being in a, in a beautiful house in a, in a great neighborhood where there's beautiful trees and parks. I mean, it's a spacious place for us to be. It's like being in an ocean where the waters are are refreshing and restoring. It's like breathing in fresh mountain air, as somebody shared from our community group, instead of like smog and pollution all the time, or in our case, like the pollen of the Missouri River Valley. (laughs) 
It's a beautiful, wide open space for us. God's grace freely given, freely received with no strings attached, no bait and switch. It's all rooted in God's love. Paul says it explicitly in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as Tim Keller says, the minute you become a Christian, God loves you as much now as he will in one million years when you're perfect. He loves you just as much right now as he will in a million years when you are completely perfect in his sight. You might say, how is that even possible? Because he has rescued you. Because by his grace, he has joined you to his own son, Jesus. And so when he looks at you, he sees his own son and Jesus's righteousness. We add absolutely nothing to the righteousness of Christ. And that means however the father looks at the son is exactly how he looks at us. And so if you see the father's face as anything other than soft and smiling, ready to, ready to connect with you, we've lost track of the grace of God. If we don't think that God is, is delighting in us, is singing over us as the scriptures say, We've lost track of the grace of God. If you are joined to Christ, all the Father's love for him is now equally poured out on you like, like a, you know, a, a downpour in a rainforest. Not a few drops here and there based on our goodness, but an absolute downpour in a rainforest. Because his love is not rooted in what we've done to make ourselves lovely, it's just who he is. God is love, and so he pours that love on us. As the hymn says, your chains are off, you've been set free. God's grace is here. Cheer up, you're more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. Let's pray.